Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Winter has well and truly arrived in Melbourne and our city is showing us her 50 shades of grey with a little sunshine sneaking through sometimes too. It is perfect weather for snuggling up with a warm cuppa and listening to the wireless. We have two outstanding guests on the show today. So have your toilet break now during my intro. Um, so you're all, you're all set to settle in for the next hour. Our first guest is Stephen S. Simpson. After 22 years at Oxford, Stephen returned home in 2005, where he is now the academic director of the Charles Perkins Centre and professor in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of London, a companion in the Order of Australia and a Eureka Prize winner. Stephen and fellow professor David Rauwenheimer have co-authored a new book called Eat like the animals. Uh, the book has won high praise from many leaders in the field like Michael Mosley, David Sinclair and others. We will be chatting with Stephen about just how animals know what to eat and what we can learn from them. Professor Trevor Williams is the clinical director of Air Med at the Alfred Hospital. Uh, upon returning in the 1990s from Toronto, where he was involved in their lung transplant program, Trevor helped established the Alfred Hospital's lung transplantation program. Look, he probably wants to forget it, but I was <laughs> he was he was one of my uh, first bosses when I was a hospital resident, and I can tell you firsthand, he's not only extraordinarily talented, but he's also one hell of a nice guy too. Trevor will be chatting with us today about the lung transplantation program, and given he is an eminent respiratory physician about COVID-19. Talk about some high-powered guests. Well, of course, we have our own high-powered regular panellists too. Dr G-Spot, psychologist, researcher extraordinaire and nurse, EpiPen manager of the Australian Spleen Registry and epidemiology know-it-all. Look, there's just way too much smartness in the studio, so I'm here to balance it all out. So join me, Dr Mal, and friends for the next hour of radiotherapy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Good morning, Nurse EpiPen. How are you? Not bad. How are you? You might have to come a little bit closer to the uh, microphone. How's that? That is better. So you can see up my nostril. <laughs> That's a fantastic view. It is absolutely fantastic. You haven't explained to the audience how we're doing this this morning. We are being very, very uh, responsible and we're socially distancing. How are we doing it this morning? Well, we're sitting in one room in this one studio. You're in another studio. Um, Dr G-Spot is in her studio. <laughs> we're all Zooming, Zooming we're, away. We are all Zooming away. G-Spot, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, Dr. Malpractice. I'm comfortably here at home in my home studios, EpiPen said, and I can't wait for this show. It sounds awesome. Yeah, it's like walking a high wire. You know, normally, I look, I said to you guys, I come into the studio and it's laid back and my pulse rate actually goes down. Now, like, it's sitting probably about 100, just there's a whole, like, NASA control room in front of me. Ah, but it'll be terrific. Now, uh, I have been speaking with you, Dr. G-Spot, 
and you have told me you've you've, you've piqued my interest about this thing called drunk drunkorexia. Or, is that right? That's right, Doctor Malpractice. I was wondering if you and EpiPen had ever heard of drunkorexia. Never. No. What is no, it? Okay. Well, that's exciting then. I get to introduce you to the topic. So basically, it's not in any of our diagnostic manuals, as you might imagine. Um, but it's a term used to describe the engagement in both eating disorder behaviours, so like restricting your food intake, yes. um, excessive exercise, vomiting, things like that, but also engaging in binge drinking. So mm. what the eating disorder behaviours do is to kind of, I suppose, counteract that calorie consumption and so you don't gain weight um, from binge drinking. So that's why it's drunkorexia. And it's... It's a really scary thing, I think, and it seems to be on the rise for some from some recent research I was reading by Powell, Jones and Simpson in The Australian Psychologist. Would you like me to tell you more about their study? Mm. Yes, please. Because it doesn't Thank sound you. particularly healthy, like this is a particularly unhealthy Not behavior. at all. It's yeah. basically eating disorder plus binge drinking. Yeah, I don't yeah. think there could be much worse, sadly. So in their study, which was of um, Australian females, 479 of them, aged 18 to 24, they found that 28%, so more than one in four, were engaging in these drunkorexic behaviours. Isn't that such a high number? Wow, wow, yeah. wow, wow. 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 I know. And this 18 to 24 age group seems to be particularly yeah. at risk. So what they were doing was um, they were restricting their calories and then going on binge drinking episodes. And it wasn't like they had eating disorders in other settings. It was really just around binge drinking. Oh, so it's specifically to counteract the calories of the alcohol. Exactly. Oh, right. Right. And they found a couple of um, extra findings, which I think was super interesting sort of some of the reasons why um, women in particular might engage in drunkorexic behaviours. First one, insufficient self-control. Secondly, emotional deprivation. And three, social isolation. And I'll talk about them individually. So first off, insufficient self-control. So that's referring to people using impulsive coping strategies when they're feeling distressed. And I think binge drinking is a pretty good example of impulsive behaviours that we might use to, to reduce our emotional distress. But for um, emotional deprivation and social isolation, these kind of speak to alcohol consumption being a bit of a social lubricant. So these women are using alcohol to feel less self-conscious and feel less alone with their peers. So this all makes, I suppose, a lot of sense that people who are a bit more impulsive and are feeling socially disconnected will engage in these drunkorexic mm -hmm. behaviours to, to lower their anxiety and feel connected with their peers. Yeah. So whereabouts, you know, if somebody's concerned, whereabouts would be the first port of call to get some help? I would definitely recommend my good colleagues at the Butterfly Helpline, and that number is 1-800-33-4673. True. And there's also your general practitioner and... Of course, uh, of course, exactly. And so I think this is something to be looking out for, not only in young women, but young men, and that's yeah. um, research that needs to be done in the future. Thank you. Now, Nurse <laughs> EpiPen, you've been, you've been playing croquet. Is it croquet or croquetting or oh, crochet? No, crochet. A crochet. But, but I'm not talking about crocheting, but it's it's the same ilk. Okay. Um, my little thing was that um, catch up was that I read in the paper yesterday about millennials knitting. Oh. Furla of a, a yarn. 
I love this EpiPen. I'm so, going to get out my knitting needles. Yes. So um, my daughter, who's creative and she's an, a musician and is trying to find fight her way through the COVID nut, nutty time, she said, Mum, let's do some knitting. So, and I said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And she, anyway, so she went ahead and bought some needles and wool and knitted me a scarf, knitted her brother a scarf. And, oh, lovely. And, and then I thought, well, you know, my mum taught me. So we sat together and did some knitting and it's been great fun. It's got a mindfulness quality about it. And um, anyway, this article is basically saying that... Um, Knitting has taken off during COVID and a young, clever young woman, Megan Elizabeth, has set up an app and it's called Bellish. And this is how Francesca taught herself how to knit online. Really? Isn't it fantastic how old things come back? Yeah. So mother didn't pass on that skill, but (laughs) she learned it from YouTube and we've been knitting together, scarves. Isn't it just amazing how we have old wine and new bottles? And now when we think about knitting, it's not so much to provide clothing, although that is a wonderful outcome. It's about mindfulness and about being in the moment. It's got, it's, it's got two purposes. Yeah, we repurpose old things and we're kind of re- – isn't that just great? I love it hearing these sorts of stories. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We have uh, Professor Stephen Simpson on the line. Stephen, are you there? I am, Mel. Thank you. Oh, I'm going to put up your volume. Now, um, we were just talking off air and I said congratulations on a fantastic book, Eat Like the Animals. How did you get the inspiration to write it? What happened? Well, the inspiration derived from 33 years of research that David Robenheimer, my co-author, and I have done on, well, quite literally, how do animals eat? How do they make wise nutritional decisions? And having understood those um, mechanisms, how animals across the animal kingdom, an extraordinary diversity of organisms, they can all balance their diet precisely and make really wise nutritional choices, why can't we? And can we learn anything from a study of the animal kingdom that can really support um, our understanding of humans and human obesity? Yeah. So, Stephen, I have a question. What, just the background to this story is you're an entomologist, is that correct? What's... That's, that's right, Happy. yep. I'm an entomologist, have been virtually since birth, since the age of three I first said I was going to be an entomologist, so yes. <laughs> Maybe not that word, though, but you were going to be a... <laughs> no, apparently I did. Apparently as a three-year-old I was asked by uh, an aunt from England who'd travelled to Melbourne to visit us she said, um, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be an entomologist um, as a three-year-old, yeah. And just step us through how you got to be an entomologist, please. Well, my, well, you, you're born with an interest in the natural world. Your enthusiasm for the natural world is something that, that is innate and that curiosity never left me. And uh, I grew up, went to the University of Queensland studied entomology, 
did my honours um, in trying to understand how blowfly maggots make appropriate nutritional choices. So that was my first um, journey into the world of nutrition. And then I, I went to the University of London to do a PhD on locust feeding behaviour, how locusts, those devastating swarming grasshoppers, make their own nutritional choices as well. And then having moved from there to um, the neurobiology of feeding in monkeys at Oxford, I went back to entomology in Oxford and was there for 25 years. And it was along that um, period that I met David. David Robenheimer came from South Africa, another entomologist as it happens with an interest in the feeding ecology of caterpillars in his case. And we got together and started to delve into um, the, the world of the nutritional biology of locusts. And from there, everything really followed. Tell us about Stella. And David, um, Stephen, would you mind just coming a little bit closer to your microphone? Sure. Thank sure. you. Stella. Ah, <laughs> now we, we open the book with Stella and I'm going to give away the, the surprise, but um, Stella is a Chakma baboon um, that lives, and she lives um, in the, um, the Cape in, in Africa. Um, and Stella was followed by David and his co-workers, um, Kaylee Johnson, particularly a PhD student, for 30 continuous days as she moved about the Boss vegetation um, and that landscape in the Cape. And during that time, she, she ate 90 different food items. So she was apparently sort of moving around the landscape, picking things up randomly and eating them. And some of those things were cast off human foods. Some of them were natural foods. Enormously variable in their composition. But when Kaylee took all of the food items and analyze the nutritional intake of Stella, the baboon, it turned out that she was precisely tracking a ratio of protein to fats and carbs, which was a one to five ratio, which supports optimal health in a female Chakma, Chakma baboon. So she was making these fantastically precise nutritional choices in a hugely complex food environment. And she was doing so without any understanding of nutrition, without a computer, without uh, a diet book. And that led to the question, how on earth can she do that? And how can all the other animals that we've studied over the years do that? And why can't we? Mm. And that led you on to slime, which is an interesting segue. Well, at the, at the very, no, you can, you can argue, okay, stellar primate, complex brain, complex organism. How about something like an acellular slime mold? Um, now, slime molds are not even animals. They predate animals. And we worked on a, a thing which is related to the marvellously named dog's vomit slime mould oh. because it's a sort of gruesome blob. You can cut it into tiny pieces and it will grow and it'll form its own little um, outreach. It, it, it sort of forms these fabulous tendrils and pulsatile vessels and it's just a blob. It has no brain, 
It has no arms or legs. It's just the blob, just like in the B movie, um, The Blob. And so what we found was that if you gave it nutritional choices to make, it had, again, just like Stella, the capacity to mix a perfect diet um, to optimize its growth. And we gave it all manner of different um, choices and tests using little agar dishes with different compositions. And it could choose precisely the right mixture of protein and carbohydrate in that case to optimize its growth. So if a slime mold can do it, why can't we? <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? I mean, that blew me away. That was in the opening uh, chapter in the introduction. And I read that night. I- yeah, exactly what you said. There was no dietitian advising. There was no complex uh, computer program saying slime mold, eat this, eat that. It kind of intuitively knew it. Right. right. And, and, and so take us from that to the rest of your research, particularly get us to the, the protein leveraging uh, theory. Yes. So, so the answer to the question, how did Stella, how did the blob, how did our locusts, make these wise nutritional choices? How did they choose and select among foods to pick exactly the right mixture of nutrients they needed? The answer we discovered was that animals have not just a single appetite, a single hunger, if you like. They don't just feel hungry in a general sense. They have specific appetites for different nutrients. And in fact, there's probably five of these appetites. And we're able to demonstrate that an appetite for protein, for carbohydrate, for fat, for sodium or salt, and calcium were the five appetites that work together in the normal um, life of an animal living in its natural environment to guide it to make appropriate nutritional choices. But if you take an animal and you put it into an environment where its nutrition is imbalanced, so it can't mix the optimal diet, and those appetites can't work together, then they compete with one another. And we discovered initially in locusts, and then ultimately in humans, that in that competition, protein wins. So the protein appetite, the specific appetite system to control how much protein we eat, is dominant. So if you force your body to have to make a decision between eating enough protein or eating too much or too little total energy in the form of fats and carbohydrates, protein will win. So you'll regulate your protein intake precisely and you'll let your total energy intake um, go up or down depending on how concentrated protein is in your diet. That turned out to be a fundamental insight into um, our understanding. It provided, in fact, a new explanation for um, the origin of the obesity epidemic in, in human, modern human societies over the last 50 or 60 years. So take us through that. How, how does the protein leveraging theory explain or help explain the obesity epidemic? So the... The critical thing here is just to remember that your body is is regulating its intake of protein. Now, that, um, that, that actually had led to people ignoring protein in the obesity epidemic. So if you actually track the intake of energy over the last 60 years, during which time the obesity epidemic has, has risen and risen, 
the increased calories that have driven obesity, and it's principally eating more calories, not expending too few, that's, mm. that has driven the epidemic, those calories have come in the form of carbohydrates and fats. And some countries, it's more carbs than fats. And in other countries, it's more fats than carbs. The protein intake has remained remarkably consistent across populations across the world. And we realized that although people were saying it can't therefore be protein that's contributed to the epidemic because there's no extra protein calories being eaten, we realized that it was the regulation of protein that was driving the epidemic. And so if you look at what's happened in the modern industrialized food system or food supply um, over the last 50 or 60 years, protein has been diluted by the addition of more and more highly processed carbohydrates and fats. Mm. Now, not by much, by 1% to 2% in the food supply, protein has gone down by 1% to 2% because of the superabundance of, of all of these, um, particularly sugars and, and, and starches and, and fats. But our body in maintaining its intake of protein throughout this time has driven us as a population to eat 10 or 15% more calories to do so. So that was, that was the explanation. We've changed our food supply. We have industrialized our food supply. We've diluted protein. We've removed fiber. That's another critical yeah. component to the story. Um, we've therefore concentrated the calories in our food supply and by virtue of the fact that we've also diluted protein, our bodies are forcing us to continue to consume calories until we reach that mm. um, target level of protein. And as uh, those extra calories in the forms of fats and, and carbs have driven the obesity epidemic. There's a wonderful anecdote in the book where you're invited to give a speech at, I think it's an aging conference in the early 2000s. And, uh, at the time, the prevailing wisdom was that calorie restriction uh, slows down ageing. And um, it sounds like you very uh, tentatively proposed the idea that perhaps it's protein restriction that actually has the, the, the major effect on that. Tell us about that. Exactly. So uh, the, we were led to ask the question, well, if our bodies care so much about not eating too much protein, so if you regulate your protein intake, it means you're eat, eating neither too little nor too much. Now, there's a very good reason for not eating too little. You need the nitrogen that comes in protein to build new tissues, to um, maintain your tissues, to reproduce and so on. But why, why should we care about not eating too much? Because you don't like eating too much protein. That's why high-protein fad diets work, because your body stops you eating when you get to your target intake of protein. Mm -hmm. And as biologists, as evolutionary biologists, we were left asking the question, well, does that imply that there's a problem with eating too much protein, that evolution has stopped us and animals like us from over-consuming protein for a reason? And that reason, it turns out, is that if you eat too much protein, particularly coupled with too little carbohydrates, that ratio is critical, you age more quickly. Mm -hmm. And we discovered initially in experiments on flies, and then we went on to do a, a, a huge experiment in mice, and then since then have been looking 
um, in human cohorts, you find this the sort of signature that goes across the animal kingdom, and that is too much protein, more than the target level of protein, accelerates the underlying processes of aging. And initially, when I proposed that at a conference, um, I expected never to be asked back again, but um, it turned out to be a really, really important observation and one that's um, led to quite a lot of what we've done in the last decade. So too much protein ain't good, too little protein obviously ain't good. Tell us how, (laughs) what are we supposed to do? How do we uh, make wise food choices? Well, look, there were really... A really encouraging message from all of what we've done, Mal, I think, is that um, these appetite systems, these exquisite appetite systems that have evolved in us as they have in other animals, are still there. Yeah. So that's the, that's the good news. Um, among them, we know that protein is the most powerful. The one thing that we also know, and we devote quite a lot of this in, um, in the book, comes back to this story about ultra-processed foods, is that those appetite systems don't work in the modern food environment. They're, they're hacked. They're subverted. Um, you, when your body needs protein, you get special cravings for savoury flavours, you know, the, the umami flavours. Mm-hmm. That's your body saying you need protein. But if you reach for the barbecue-flavoured chips, they're a protein decoy. They Mm. taste like protein. They have all the flavour cues of protein that our body has evolved to expect, but they're fat and carbs. So you've got to get those those foods out of your food environment. Mm. You need to surround yourself with a food environment within which these appetite systems function properly. Mm. They're fish out of water in the modern um, food environment. Mm. If you surround yourselves with natural whole foods, and you can do all manner of different diets. You can, you can, uh, you can have entirely plant-based diets. You can have an omnivorous diet. It doesn't matter. The fad diets you can throw away. You just need to put your appetite systems in an appropriate food environment where there's plenty of fiber, plenty of whole foods, and listen and learn to listen to your appetites. Just bear in mind that there are more than one. You're not just hungry. And if you think about it, ask yourself the question, particularly, am I hungry for something savoury flavoured? Then reach for a high-quality, savoury, protein-rich food, whether that be dairy-based or eggs or meat or um, or, or, or um, beans and, and legumes, chickpeas, or what have you. It doesn't matter. They're all high-quality, high-protein foods. Don't reach for the savoury snack foods. You don't need them. They're irresistible. They're designed to be irresistible, and you <laughs> won't resist them, and you'll end up eating the wrong things. Now, I know you uh, started off your university career doing psychology, and it's one of the sort of tenets of behavioral psychology is that access predicts uh, behavior. Surround right. yourself with healthy food, you're going to be more likely to eat healthy food. Stephen J. Simpson is uh, one of the co authors of Eat Like the Animals. It is an absolutely fantastic book. I'm getting signals from Penny. Penny, why are you signaling me? Uh, G-Spot's got a question. I didn't see G-Spot's question. Sorry, sorry, G-Spot. 
<laughs> You're pointing down, but she's not down on my screen. She's left on oh, my screen. Oh, so, sorry, Mel. <laughs> That's okay. Um, just one final question, Stephen. Just I work a lot in the field of eating disorders, which is where right. I think intuitive eating has really just gone completely haywire. And believe me, we try to teach it. The diet that most of them are talking about at the moment is the keto diet. And I was wondering if you could quickly comment on that one. Now, look, the keto diet is the diet where you essentially take out carbohydrates from um, the diet. And, and your body is desperately trying to use glucose as its principal fuel. If you eat too little carbs, then it has to switch um, to fat-derived um, um, energy sources and 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 that's that's ketosis and they're, they're they're the ketone bodies that are burned your body can do that it doesn't much like doing that um, if you go on to a keto diet you typically won't have much fiber unless you add it separately um, it's a very good ratio it, it's typically also concentrated in protein it's a high protein diet unless you're on the very low protein keto diet that's used, for example, to treat um, it, it, it's, it's epilepsy, particularly mm. in children. It's, it's a therapeutic diet. My view is that keto, which will make you lose weight because it concentrates protein um, and it is a diet that's essentially a therapeutic diet. It's not a lifestyle diet, in my view. I would hate to go on it more than I needed to lose the weight to um, gain the health benefits that weight loss can provide if you need to lose weight. And thereafter, I would get off it quick smart mm -hmm. and get back onto a whole food balanced diet, which provides the opportunity for all your appetites to work together um, for your health benefit. Music to my ears. Thank you so much, Stephen. <laughs> Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. The book is very hard to miss. It is, has the most wonderful cover design. It's it's green with a uh, a knife and fork that's got fur on it, and uh, absolutely terrific. Congratulations on, on the book, and thank you so much for joining us to talk about it like the animals. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. On, I was going to say on the blower, but it's not really on the blower. It's on the Zoom. We've got uh, Professor Trevor Williams. Good morning, Trevor. Uh, good morning, Dr. Mel. How are you? I'm very, very well. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, you're coming to us live from your living room, it looks like. Uh, actually, I'm down the peninsula, so uh, it is a long weekend after all. <laughs> it is. Some of us get the weekend off. Now, uh, Trevor, I, I reminded the viewers, uh, the listeners, that um, I worked in your department about uh, three decades ago, and uh, yeah. I, I think you've probably uh, scorched it out of your memory, because I don't think I was a particularly good resident, um, and I subsequently <laughs> went into another specialty. Nonetheless, that was about the time that the lung transplantation program started up at the Alfred. Tell us about those early days. Yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, Trevor, I might um, ask you to come a little bit closer to the microphone too, if that's possible. Sure. So, about 30 years ago, in fact, over 30 years ago, we uh, started a lung transplant program at the Alfred, and uh, it's really, uh, you know, 
30 years and sitting in rooms um, in isolation with COVID makes you reflect a lot on these things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I reflected is that uh, although the transplant program has been uh, really incredibly successful, it really only, um, it's really only a relatively small number of people who directly benefit from it. And certainly over the last 30 years, we have been trying to find treatments that, uh, reduce the need for lung transplantation and I think probably you know the first of these areas has been in the area um, of, uh, of cystic fibrosis and this is something that's not necessarily directly related to me but before I went and did some training in transplant in Toronto who were actually the only people at that stage offering isolated lung transplants which is what we now do yeah. um, you know I was a registrar and uh, Basically, many of our young people with cystic fibrosis, um, there was nothing we could do. They breached the end of their life. And um, I still remember particularly mothers sitting with, uh, sitting with their families or with their, with their children, um, you know, waiting for them to die in hospital. And uh, it was quite amazing uh, when I returned and we were able to set up a transplant program that things really started to change and the same mothers were with their children and uh, other children in the same family and they were having transplants and some of those have really done remarkably well and in fact the first transplant lung transplant we did at the Alfred Hospital was uh, a young man from Adelaide who had cystic fibrosis and he survived actually uh, I think more than 27 years after that after that transplant and so it was quite amazing to see how those patients um, and their families uh, you know there's a new hope for them um, and uh, you know it's really incredibly exciting to see that and in the last few years there's been some very um, interesting developments in cystic fibrosis where um, some very creative scientists have developed some drugs that work on the uh, underlying uh, defect which is a defect in the chloride channels which are a very important uh, mechanism that helps almost every cell in the body run. And uh, these drugs have, um, for the first time, the opportunity to change the natural history of this um, genetic disease. And so we're now really seeing some um, really quite amazing effects, particularly in the patients that have certain genetic defects which are best treated by um, these these drugs, but the drugs are being modified, and we've now got these three drug regimens, and so the whole landscape of that condition has changed. And you know, I think Rob, when you were working with us, sorry, Dr. Mel, you'll remember that uh, you know, the, the the survival at that time was probably you know we were happy when they got to be adults, but um, you know if they got to be thirty, we thought that was quite remarkable. And I just uh, had an email the other day saying that the the median survival now, I think, in Australia is uh, predicted to be about 47 years, which is not normal survival. But, you know, over those three decades, that has improved, you know, quite quite dramatically. Mm. So, that you know, that's, that's one group of the patients that we've seen. Yeah. We've seen another group of patients who uh, have a quite rare condition called pulmonary hypertension. And uh, these are diseases where the blood vessels within the lung become narrowed down and they put a substantial strain on the right side of the heart. 
And when I, when we first started our transplant program, I still remember a patient who was pretty typical of what we'd see. She was a lady who was um, in her early 20s who had this absolutely devastating disease and she would come in and uh, there was sort of a mad scramble to try and get her assessed transplant. And uh, if we were really lucky, we could transplant it, but there was very little we could do to stabilise the situation. Mm -hmm. And in the last, um, certainly in the last decade and a half, um, there is a number of drugs that have become available to us that have led to us at least being able to stabilise the condition. And in many patients, we can give them, you know, really a good, enduring, long-term uh, long survival. And uh, so, you know, in the last five or so years, these sort of young patients come in, we're really quite confident now that we can support them. Mm -hmm. um, and if they turn around, that's fantastic. And if they can't turn around, then uh, we know that we have transplant as a backup for them with you know, all the bells and whistles that we have available to, to do it. And so, you know, it's just another condition that, you know, over that period of time, even though the number of transplants has grown substantially, it's it's really these these other background conditions that we've, mm. you know, really been excited that we've been able to do stuff that means that uh, we don't um, we don't need to move to transplant with, uh, with uh, many of them. And so uh, that's something that, uh, you know, in reflection has been very exciting. But, you know, we have been reflecting based on um, sitting inside um, in isolation with yeah. COVID. So there's <laughs> yes. plenty of time to reflect on. So Trevor EpiPen here. Um, yeah. Um, my cousin died from cystic fibrosis. And yeah. He died when he was uh, just before his 21st birthday. He lived in the UK. Yeah. So he would have probably had an opportunity to have had a transplant had he been living now. And you, yeah. at your conversation with us, you said that you that the Alfred's been doing a few. Could you just, um, what numbers of, of lung transplants are you doing per year? Okay, so when we first started, um, I remember I wrote part of the proposal and we thought we'd do eight the first year, we did 16. And then um, in the mid nineties, we were doing around 35 to 40 per year. Um, and then with a, a, the, the, the RUD initiative on organ donation, things have uh, dramatically increased. And uh, uh, not last year, but the year before we hit a hundred lung transplants in a year, which, uh, which is uh, a huge, uh, huge increase. It, won't be quite that many this year because the, the COVID situation has sort of um, uh, put a bit of a, a dampener on it. But uh, that's, um, you know, that, that, that means that we can confidently um, offer lung transplant for most, almost all the CF patients and the pulmonary hypertension that were our sort of initial constituents of, of transplantation. And this, you know, so we're able to offer transplant a lot more widely than we, uh, than we ever used to. And in Australia, we, we do about uh, something around 4% of all of the lung transplants done in the world. And actually, we have the highest servicing rates, which means that we do the highest number of lung transplants per head of population than anywhere in the world. Um, and so that's really allowed us to, uh, you know, to offer cystic fibrosis patients pretty confidently a transplant. And if we're thinking of a, a heart transplant, a lung transplant, a kidney transplant, liver transplant, where does 
the um, difficulty of a lung transplant fitting in those mm. Oh, well, it's, it, it certainly, um, in terms of difficulty, is probably still regarded as the, the, the more difficult of the, the, the standard transplants that are done. It's um, actually the only transplant where the organ itself is exposed to the outside environment. And so, um, and mm. there are always problems with uh, infections in the transplanted organ because it's, mm. you know, because if it gets damaged, it can't clear the infection uh, that well. And it's always being exposed to organisms uh, in the environment. So that's, that's tricky. The other thing that's quite, different about the lung, particularly compared to the liver, is that the lung doesn't recover very quickly. So once it gets damaged, it may recover, but it recovers incredibly slowly. And uh, uh, whereas the liver, you know, one of the reasons that you can drink a few glasses of wine is simply that the liver has a huge capacity to recover. It gets injured, but it has a huge capacity to recover. So um, in, in liver transplant, you still can get the damage to the uh, to the liver, but it seems to be able to recover uh, much more quickly. And you know that's that sort of poor rate of recovery is something that we're quite interested in with the the present situation with COVID. You know, trying to understand how quickly people might uh, might actually recover from this um, you know very severe uh, uh, viral infection in the lung that can occur in a small percentage of these patients and. At the Alfred, we've just seen a couple of patients successfully uh, come off our most advanced form of life support called extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And one of them has actually left hospital. And you know, we're very interested to see how quickly or how slowly it's going to take for the lung to recover from, uh, from this huge insult. But we're, we're pretty confident that as long as nothing else happens, it probably will, but it will take much longer than you would you would think from uh, such a severe injury. Um, so Trevor, you talked about um, the lung being exposed to open air like during transplant. Can you please talk us through the process of the lung being donated and getting to the recipient? Yeah, and I think that one of the things that is really remarkable about being in um, in the field of transplantation is that the first thing that happens is that a family on absolutely the worst day of their life is able to make a decision to uh, help another family that they don't know, or in fact, many other families that they don't know. And you know, that clearly is what separates humans from other species, that they've got that extraordinary ability to do that. There are actually now two pathways and um, that, that occur in Australia in terms of lung transplant. One is the conventional pathway, which is called uh, donation after brain death. And what that actually means is that um, the person has sustained such severe injury to the brain that all circulation to the brain has stopped. And we have um, standard tests to determine that, which means that even though the, the heart may be still beating and the person is supported on a ventilator, um, the person has died. And so that transplantation can occur under those circumstances. More recently, uh, we've realised that the lung, even though uh, it's slow to recover, it doesn't get damaged quite as quickly as other organs when the blood supply stops. And so um, we've now, um, in the last 10 years or so, done quite a lot of transplants where 
the heart has actually stopped. So the person's had a, a, a cardiac arrest for a period of time, but we can still use the lungs in transplantation in that, uh, in that particular circumstance. So that's called uh, donation, after, uh, donation after cardiac death. And uh, that's increased the number of transplants we've done by about 25% uh, being able to uh, use organs in that circumstance. So then um, what happens is that we assemble the team, we send it out to the hospital where the person, uh, the donor has died, um, and uh, they are able then uh, with the other organ transplant teams to uh, take, take the organs in what's, you know, just a very large but standard surgical uh, procedure uh, and then the organs may be trans transported and you know we not infrequently uh, not so much anymore but we used to go as far as Perth we've been as far as Darwin we've been all through New Zealand and brought those organs back to Australia and there's this huge logistic exercise of trying to coordinate that part of the procedure with um, procedures where we may have a team waiting to do a heart transplant and another team waiting to do uh, a, a lung transplant or a double lung transplant mm. in two different recipients. Mm. Um, and so the organs arrive, the team are already underway uh, and to try and reduce the, the period that the organs are without blood supply. Uh, and then um, the, the procedure occurs, um, you know, a heart transplant, you don't get much time from about eight hours and it could be much longer than that. And a lung transplant, typically that sort of time period. And then all, they all go back to the intensive care unit and have various stays, anything from a couple of days to a month, depending on how complicated things are. Uh, and then um, uh, hopefully a, long, a relatively long period of rehabilitation and then uh, a plan is to return people to full normal capacity. It's an exceptionally complex process, not just in terms of the operation and in terms of the post-op management, Trevor, in terms of the, you know, managing the immune response and infections and all those very difficult bits of physiology, but just the logistics of, of teeing it up, of, you know, making sure that everybody's in the right place at the right time with the recipient, with the donor, with the surgeons, with the theatres, with the transport. It's... I mean, just those logistics alone are like a, a Rubik's Cube. Um, so congratulations. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing achievement, especially that we are one of the per capita world leaders in, in lung transplantation. That's just uh, absolutely... I did, actually didn't know that. So well done. Are you planning some sort Thanks. of... Uh, in the, Thanks, Dr. Mel. <laughs> are you planning some sort of celebration and, uh, and are we invited for the 30-year... Um, uh, yes, we are planning some celebrations, but um, the celebrations did get put on hold because of some other events that seem to have <laughs> overtaken us just at the moment. But, uh, but no, we will be, we'll be celebrating it. But, um, you know, again, um, it, none of this happens without, uh, without families who make, you know, the, the, the ultimate decision to help other people. Yeah, it really is an extraordinary uh, achievement from so many different angles, and I reckon um, there's a couple of good yeah. books in this. Um, Trevor, we were going to ask you about uh, COVID, but unfortunately we've run out of time. Um, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll yeah, see. Yeah, I think you... people might be COVIDed out. Yeah. I know I'm Zoomed <laughs> yeah, out. <laughs> COVID, yeah, there is a bit of fatigue with uh, the information and Zoom as well. Thanks so much for joining us, and uh, we'll see you at the celebration. No um, you have been listening to Radiotherapy. Uh, you've been listening to us on... Uh, 
live on the wireless. But, you know, you can also listen to us on the web via podcast and via live stream. Um, I'd like to say thank you to both our guests, Professor Stephen J. Simpson, and uh, that was uh, Professor Trevor Williams from the Alfred Hospital. And both our panellists are still there. Nurse EpiPen, who's texting. Oh, you're terrible, EpiPen. You shouldn't text. What? Thank you. Okay. (laughs) That's okay then. And uh, Dr. G-Spot, thanks so much for, for being on the show. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.